We are coming tonight to the next portion in Luke 11. So if you turn to Luke 11 once again this evening, we will come to verses 14 through 26. Luke 11, 14 through 26. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Father, as we consider this passage about the realms of darkness that are just beyond our sight most of the time. We pray that you would convince us that they are real, but that you are greater, that Christ is King of kings, even King who has authority over the ruler of the demons. So show us Jesus, show us his power, give us great confidence in him tonight, we pray. Amen. There are two equal and opposite errors, C.S. Lewis said, into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. That's from the preface of Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. And you may remember me reading those very same words to you just a few weeks ago. And this evening I lay them out before you again because I think they're incredibly relevant to what we see in Luke 11. And they're uh, very thought provoking, I hope, and helpful to you, especially so as we prepare to spend the rest of our time this evening thinking about demons and about exorcism. That's really the task that's before us with these 13 verses. Luke dedicates a full 13 verses to the topic of evil spirits, and as a consequence, we're going to dedicate a full half an hour or 40 minutes to do the same. And I say that some of us will be tempted to play the part, as Lewis puts it, of the magician. That is, some of us will be tempted to leave this evening all aflutter 
about the spirit world, tempted to go home and Google the word demons or the word exorcism and to spend our time researching all things demonic the way some people do, uncovering the fact that their great-aunt Mabel was one-eighth Native American. Just all over the computer about these things, and that would be a mistake. But many others of us, probably most of us, at the other end of the spectrum are prone toward being, in Lewis' words, materialists. That is to say that many of us, by nature and by culture, think of demons almost like we think of the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. We say to ourselves, well, perhaps there's some truth in all these old stories. But that was a long time ago, and this is the modern world, and I really don't expect to run up against any demons tomorrow at work or any Bigfoots or any monsters either. And so some of us will be prone, without realizing it, to think like that, to leave this evening feeling informed about Jesus and the demons, but not really expecting Luke 11, 14 through 26 to have a great deal of relevance when we get to work tomorrow or when we're cutting the grass on Saturday afternoon. What is relevant to us, for the most part, is what we can see with our own two eyes, what is material. And while I grant that demonic activity seems much more prevalent in the pages of the New Testament than it does in the pages of the Cincinnati Enquirer, after all, Jesus Jesus was on the earth and Satan was surely concentrating all of his forces on this carpenter from Nazareth. I grant that. But it also needs to be said that Luke didn't record these stories for no reason. No. When you think about all that must have happened over the three-year span of Jesus' life and, and earthly ministry, you realize that the gospel writers only recorded a portion of all that they saw and all that they heard. And so they had to be selective as to what they chose to include in these relatively brief books that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so surely they didn't record events simply because they were quaint or interesting. No, their goal in what they recorded was to be as helpful to their readers and to their listeners as they possibly could be in understanding Jesus. And therefore we must assume that Luke and the others who wrote about Jesus chose to include certain events and certain sayings because they believed those events and sayings would be most helpful and most relevant to their readers. And therefore we must conclude that the reason Luke recorded Jesus' interactions here with the demonic realm in verses 14 through 26 was precisely because out of all the things that happened in Jesus' life, he knew that these events would have particularly continuing relevance and application even to people who lived in different places and different times from himself. I say that Luke must have believed that verses 14 through 26 would have value for people like us. Indeed, God wouldn't have us working through Luke and hovering over this passage this evening if it were not going to be of some value for us in the days that are ahead of us. Just to drive that point home, let me remind you of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just ten days ago, we considered that account and what it means for each of us by way of practical application in our lives. And I know for a fact, I know for a fact that in these last ten days, God has put many of you on your very own road to Jericho. That is to say, in these last ten days, many of you have had very obvious and clear opportunities to put the lessons of the Good Samaritan into practice. And that's no accident. 
God was orchestrating the events in your life so that just a few days before you would be called to be a good Samaritan, you would have the opportunity to hear of the good Samaritan. So you'd be ready. And I presume that God is going to do the same thing with this passage. It's going to be needed. It's going to be relevant. Someone in this room, perhaps many someones in this room, are going to find Luke 11, 14 through 26 incredibly poignant and needful in the days that lie ahead. And I don't know who you are, and neither do you yet. And that means that each one of us needs to think clearly and listen carefully this evening. Each one of us needs to glean as much as we possibly can from what Luke has to say about Jesus and the demons. And before we dive into what Jesus actually said about those demons and about exorcism, let me just spend a moment or two setting the scene as we have it here in verses 14 through 16. We read, of course, in verse 14 that Jesus was casting out a demon and that After having been tongue-tied by that demon for who knows how long, the man who had been long possessed and who is now marvelously marvelously freed began to speak. That was an amazing thing. And when that happened, there were three distinct responses from the crowd. I want you to notice them. First, there were large numbers of people in verse 14 who were amazed at what Jesus had done. Amazed at what Jesus had done. Then second, in verse 15, there were some people who said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, or Satan, the ruler of demons. And then thirdly, verse 16, there was another group of people who weren't satisfied with this miracle, but were, quote, demanding of him a sign from heaven. Evidently, another sign than the one he had just given to prove that he really was the Christ. And I point out those three groups and their three responses because it seems to me that what Jesus did in the verses that follow was to give a fitting response and or warning to each one of those groups. Notice it with me. In verses 17 through 19, he responded sternly to those who thought he was casting out demons because he was himself demonic. And then beginning in verse 20 and going down to verse 22, he gave a retort for those who were demanding another sign as proof of his identity. And then as we'll see in verses 23 to 26, he issued a warning appropriate to those who were excited about what they had just seen but needed to see things a little more clearly. So three responses from the people to the miracle and then three responses from the miracle worker to the people. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time is just to spend several minutes looking at each one of those responses or warnings that Jesus gave. And along the way, we'll learn a little bit about the demons. We'll learn a little bit more about Jesus himself. And we'll learn a great deal, I hope, about how the two relate to one another. So we'll begin from verses 17 through 19 with Jesus' response to those who accused him of being himself Demonic, And I think we can summarize his answer like this. A house divided against itself falls. A house divided against itself falls. Isn't that what Jesus said in verse 17? And it makes common sense, doesn't it? A house divided against itself will fall. And perhaps some of us need to take that to heart in regard to our own houses and our own families. But Jesus, in this case, was applying that logic to Satan's house, Beelzebul's house, or kingdom. And what he said in verses 17 and 18 was basically this, if I can summarize it. He looked at them and said, you think I cast out demons by Beelzebul? That makes absolutely no sense at all. 
Don't you know that a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste? If Satan were going to send one demon to cast out another demon, his whole empire would eventually crumble upon itself. So how can you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul? Beelzebul is far too smart for that. That's the essence of verses 17 and 18. And what Jesus said there brings up a very important point. Namely, that Satan is no dummy. Satan is no dummy. Jesus' accusers may have not had enough sense to know that a house divided against itself falls, but Jesus points out that Satan surely does understand that. He's far more savvy than we may think, so we'd better be on the alert. We had better station sentries on the watchtowers of our hearts. We'd better not fall asleep on the lookout. This enemy that we're up against, this is not the Keystone Cops. This is not an inferior general with an inferior force. This is someone who knows what he's doing, and Jesus points out that his tactics are wise. Satan is not going to defeat himself. Now, there are some opponents who will do that, right? If you play tennis or badminton or volleyball, you know that there are some people who just always beat themselves, right? All you've got to do is just get over the net, and eventually they're going to make a mistake. And so when you're playing an opponent like that, not a great deal of vigilance is required. Just get it over the net. But, but Jesus is reminding us Satan is not like that. His strategies are always well planned out. His strokes are usually well executed. He does not beat himself. And that's one lesson Jesus is teaching us here in these verses. And that's a lesson we need to take to heart. Satan is no dummy, and we need to be on the ready at all times. But the main lesson here in these first few verses is that Jesus' power is different than Satan's power. That's the confusion that was going on. They thought that his power was demonic power. But he says, no, that's not my power at all. My power is different from that. And what we learn then, secondly here, is that Jesus is no mere caster of spells. He's not just a caster of spells. He is not a sorcerer doing tricks with power that comes from who knows where. No. The power that Jesus exercises is clearly different from the power that these other spiritual forces exercise. It's clean power. It's holy power. It's good power. It's power from on high. And just to to illustrate the difference, let me read to you a a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the last century. He said, I remember a woman who is a spiritist and even a medium, in other words, a witch, a paid member of the Spiritist Society. She used to go every Sunday evening to a Spiritist meeting and was paid three guineas for acting as a medium. This was in the 30s, and that was quite a large sum of money for a lower-class woman. She was ill one Sunday and could not go to keep her appointment. She was sitting in her house, and she saw people passing by on their way to the church where I happened to be ministering in South Wales. Something made her feel a desire to know what these people had, and so she decided to go to the service and did so. She came ever afterwards until she died and became a very fine Christian. One day I asked her what she had felt on that first visit, and this is what she said to me. The moment I entered your chapel and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a power. I was conscious of the same sort of power as I was accustomed to in our spiritist meetings, but there was one big difference. I had a feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power. And that's the difference that we see here. A clean power. That's what I'm trying to illustrate. That's precisely what Jesus was exercising in verse 15 and what his accusers failed to see. 
Jesus' power was something akin to the power that they had also seen the demons manifest. Yes, they saw that there was something similar. It was a spiritual power. It was an otherworldly power. It was an astonishing power. But Jesus says it's not the same power as was employed by Beelzebul and his demons. This was a clean power, a holy power, a power, as I said, from on high. And we ought to pray, just as an aside, that visitors into our little chapel might sense and see that very same clean power at work among us, even as soon as they sit down in our midst. But here's the thing from Luke 11. Not only did they mistake Jesus' power for unclean power, but Jesus' accusers, in doing so, were guilty of a great and a grievous sin. They were guilty of a great, great sin in what they said to him in verse 15. It's not simply that they misinterpreted what they saw happening in verse 14. It's not that they mistook clean power for filthy power, but that in verse 15 they were blaspheming God. They were attributing to Satan that which was actually the mighty working of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's Son. And they knew better. That's the point of verse 19. They knew better. Look at that verse. Jesus pointed out there to his accusers that their own sons, meaning probably their followers, but maybe their actual sons, but their followers were also casting out demons, Jesus says in verse 19. In other words, there were apparently other Jewish exorcists who were doing just the same thing as Jesus had done in verse 14. And Jesus said in verse 19 basically this, why aren't you accusing them of being demonic too? Why am I the only one you're picking on? If I'm casting out demons by Beelzebul, where does your son's power come from? Do you see what Jesus was saying? He was pointing out that his accusers were being a little bit two-faced. They weren't accusing the other exorcists of being demonic, only Jesus. And the point is that it was not that they did not know that God sometimes uses human beings to cast out demons by his power. It wasn't that they thought that all demonic... Uh, casting out was also done by demonic power. No, they understood that, that God could do this. So their problem wasn't that they didn't understand. Their problem was that they didn't like Jesus. And the quickest way to discredit his ministry was for them to say that all the strange and unusual miracles that he performed were evidence that he was dancing with the devil, evidence that he was dabbling in the occult. And I say that that was a grievous sin to attribute to the devil that which was actually of God. And Jesus told them that they'd be judged for it there at the end of verse 19. And I spend time on that to say that we need to be very careful that we don't plunge head first into that same sort of quicksand. We need to be very slow to throw around accusations that so-and-so is working by demonic power, especially towards other professed believers in Jesus lest we end up blaspheming, lest we end up attributing something to the devil that may actually have been the working of God. Now Paul tells us, doesn't he, if someone fouls up the gospel, Galatians 1, 8 and 9, if someone preaches a message that is not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we need to be willing to call a spade a spade. And similarly, when someone is unrepentant in obvious patent sin, then we need to be willing to speak up and say what is true. But sometimes we don't have any clear evidence that someone is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes we're just conjecturing 
or we're just irritated like the Pharisees or like the people in verse 15. Sometimes it may be that someone is doing something in the name of Jesus that makes us uncomfortable because we've not seen it before and we can't explain it and it's something that we think perhaps could be used by the devil to deceive people. And in those cases, we need to be very slow to throw around the kinds of accusations that were flung at Jesus here in verse 15. We can and we should point out what we find troubling and confusing. We can and we should say to people, I'm not sure I completely am on board with what you're doing and how you're doing it, but we need to be very careful to jump to the conclusion that someone's behavior must be satanic, lest we be found to be blaspheming God in the process. Just to give you an example, I remember in seminary, a young man stood up in class one day and announced that he was quitting school, in essence because he had bigger fish to fry. He was, he was ahead of the rest of us and didn't need to continue. And so right before he sat down, he said, and don't be surprised if you see me on TV someday raising someone from the dead. Well, I mean, it, it was hushed in the room. And I think most of us students, myself included, would have been quite satisfied if the professor had condemned his remarks as being demonic. But I well remember the professor's response. He said, well, so-and-so, I'm not really sure what I think about that. I'm not really sure that I agree with what you just said. However, Jesus warns us against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to pray for you and wish you well. And perhaps the Holy Spirit will indeed do amazing things through you. And it was incredibly helpful to me the way he responded. He in no way condoned what I'm sure he thought were exceedingly questionable comments and what were definitely prideful comments. But at the same time, he did not jump to conclusions that were beyond the pale of his spiritual eyesight either. That professor didn't default to calling the young man's ideas demonic. And we should be careful to do the same. There is no one, Jesus said in Mark 9.39, who will be able to perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now, that's the first section. But in verses 20 through 22, then we find Jesus answering the faithless response of another group of individuals. First, he answers those who accused him of being demonic now, in verses 22, 20 to 22, he answers the naysayers of verse 16. They said, show us another sign so that we can know that you really are the Messiah. And Jesus responded to them by saying, in essence, the house has already fallen. The house has already fallen. One way a house can fall is, verse 17, when it's divided against itself. But another way that a house can fall is if a strong man... Someone even stronger than the owner of the house comes, verses 21 and 22, and attacks the owner and overpowers him and takes from him all the armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. And that, Jesus says to the naysayers, is what you've just witnessed happening. I cast that demon out, verse 20, he said, by the finger of God. And if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you naysayers, know for certain, verse 20, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, what Jesus was saying in verses 20 through 22 is something like this. What other sign could you possibly want? The only person who can manhandle the demons like this is someone stronger than the ruler of the demons, than the owner of the house. 
The only person, he says, who could subdue the kingdom of darkness the way you've just seen me do is someone who is a king of a superior and more powerful kingdom. So he's saying, how can you demand a sign from me? Haven't I just given you phenomenal evidence of who I am, namely the king of kings? He says, rest assured, the kingdom of God has come upon you. You don't need another sign. I am indeed the king, and you've just seen the proof of it. That's the tenor of verses 20 through 22, I believe. Jesus was issuing a retort to the naysayers, a rejoinder to the people in the first century and beyond who demand from him a sign and another sign and yet another sign. He's already given all the evidence necessary, he argues here in these verses, to prove that he is the Christ of God. And that's the main point in verses 20 through 22. Luke has once again proven that Jesus is the Christ of God. That's the main point. Jesus is the Christ of God, and here's proof. That's the main point, but once again, there are a couple of other lessons to be learned here from these verses. One such lesson is that Jesus does not do tricks for the haughty and hard-headed. Jesus does not do tricks for the haughty and the hard-headed. In other words, he wasn't going to perform another miracle just to satisfy people who had already had every opportunity to be satisfied and simply wouldn't believe. And that premise holds true today. God is not in the business of doing tricks to satisfy the curiosity of stubborn, willful doubters. Let them observe all the evidence that he has already laid out, both in his word and in his world. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. I saw an editorial cartoon recently with a man sitting amongst beautiful scenery and the stars were dotting the sky like raindrops on a windshield, just stars everywhere. The moon was dangling in place like a lamp hung from God's ceiling. Trees were all over the landscape and the man was standing there beside a beautiful babbling brook. And the caption at the bottom, as he looked at all these things, said, God, if you're real, show me a sign. And of course, the point of the cartoon was well taken. God was already showing him a sign. And if people obstinately refuse to look at the signs that God has already given in the Bible and in the babbling brook, the Lord is not obligated to answer further requests. And we see that in this passage. They were demanding of him a sign from heaven, verse 16, but no sign, no further sign was forthcoming. But make no mistake, it's not that Jesus gave them no signs, is it? No, Jesus had just plundered the strong man's house. Jesus had just cast out a demon from a man who had been mute for all those years, and now he began to speak again. So there was a sign, and there are signs. God does show himself, doesn't he? And that's a good reminder for us when we're assailed with doubts. God has shown himself, and he continues to show himself. And so the thing you need to do is not to ask God for another sign, but to ask God to help you believe the ones that he's already strewn like breadcrumbs all across your path, all throughout the scriptures, indeed, even here in Luke eleven, fourteen, God does that for me all the time. Satan will attack me or just my own sinful nature will attack me with some doubt. And I'll say to myself, just for a moment, maybe I've been sold a bill of goods all along. Maybe the secular scientists are right. Maybe the world is just one giant machine operating as the result of some really good molecular rolls of the dice. 
I face those kind of doubts just like some of you do every now and again. But they usually only last for a few seconds before God shows me a flower with all the intricate details that are there that could not have simply sprung up by chance. And it's not just that there's one flower, but that there are thousands of beautiful and diverse kinds of irises and roses and orchids and lilies and Venus flytraps and the list could go on. And I think to myself, no, 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 no. Don't listen to those doubts. There has to be a God. There must be a God. And that's what Paul said in Romans 1. The evidences of God's power and of God's existence are everywhere for us to see. And especially, Hebrews 1 tells us, in the words of the prophets, and even more especially in the person of God's Son. The signs are everywhere to see. And let me point out then one other noteworthy item before we move to verses 23 through 26. Namely this, when it comes to casting out demons, when it comes to binding the devil, Jesus is the strong man. Jesus is the strong man. That's part of the point of this story. The someone stronger there in verse 22 is not Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland. The someone stronger in verse 22 is not Court Strassner or you. The someone stronger in verse 22, the one who is capable of walking right through Satan's front door and tying him up like a damsel in distress, is Jesus, not any one of us. And if there's any doubt that Jesus is talking about himself in verse 22, we need to remember that he's the one in this story who just finished casting out the demon. In verse 22, he's simply describing what happened in verse 14. So Jesus is the someone stronger. And what that means is that while God can and does use human beings to cast out demons, those human beings need to remember that they aren't the strong men and women. They need to remember, we need to remember that the power is not in ourselves. It's not in a certain set of words that we learn. It's not just because we're Christians that we can do this. If we were to attempt to enter the strong man's house and bind the devil in our own strength, if we presume that verse 22 was written about ourselves, we would end up like the seven sons of one Sceva in Acts 19 who fled out of the strong man's house bleeding and naked. So Jesus is the stronger man there in verses 20 through 22. And consequently, the main big point that we should understand and that Jesus was saying to the naysayers is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. That's his response to the naysayers. Look at what I've done and you can see who I am. That's your sign. And then in verses 23 through 26, he gave a warning that was fitting, I think, for the people who were amazed at all that Jesus had done that day. So he responded to those who accused him of being demonic. He responded to those who demanded for a sign. But now he responds, he gives a warning that's fitting to the people who were amazed at what he had done. And what he said basically was this. An empty house is an invitation for trouble. Verses 23 to 26. An empty house is an invitation for trouble. Now, I don't know for sure if Jesus had the amazed crowds exactly in mind when he spoke in these last few verses, but it seems obvious to me that they, like we, probably needed the warning that he gives here in these last few verses. You've seen amazing things, but let me tell you, you haven't seen everything you need to see yet. And let me see if I can help us make sense 
of what he says here and what are surely some strange verses at the end of this passage. We should note, first of all, that Jesus mixed his metaphors beginning in verses 23 through 26. He had been using the word house to refer to Satan's kingdom. And now he has begun using the word house to refer to individual human souls, particularly to souls who have been possessed by demons. So he's still using the word house, but now house is referring to us, to our souls. And so he says, first, a demon enters the house of a man's soul, and then it goes out or is sent away, verse 24. And while it's away, the man cleans up his house, verse 25. He sweeps and dusts and mops his soul, so to speak. He gets back to normal life, I think is what Jesus is saying in verse 25. He experiences a moral uplift out of the degradation and confusion that was in his life when the demon was there. But eventually, the demon returns and finds the house in far better condition than he left it, verse 26. And so he decides he'll move back in again and bring a reality show worth of other evil spirits with him. And I say that these verses are strange for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus refers to these homeless demons as roaming about in waterless places, in desert places, if you will, and we might wonder why that is. We might also wonder, since demons are the instruments of chaos, why it would appear that they like a swept in a clean house better than they like a filthy and a dirty one. And I'm not sure I have all the answers to those questions. But I'm okay with that because I'm not sure that those questions are really the main point of what Jesus is saying. In fact, they may well be the kinds of questions that if we spent too long trying to brainstorm answers would lead us to the excessive and unhealthy interest in things demonic that C.S. Lewis wrote about. So I want to pass by those questions and get to the main point. I don't know why they go to waterless places. I don't really know why they like clean houses, so to speak. But the main point of verses 23 through 26 is this, that it's not merely enough to cast the demon out. It's not merely enough when someone is demon-possessed to cast the demon out. That's the whole point here. If we encounter a person who's possessed by an evil spirit, a person who's perhaps involved in the occult, merely getting them free of those entanglements is not the end game. It's not enough to get them back into their right mind and back into the mainstream of normal life, verse 25. Why is that? Well, because as Jesus says, the demon will eventually come right back. And why will he come back? Because though the house of the soul has been swept and put in order, it's still empty. And empty houses are an invitation for trouble, are they not? Empty houses attract the homeless. Empty houses attract drug addicts and dealers. Empty houses attract prostitutes and so on in the world in which we live. And so it's not enough for the city to come along and kick the squatters out of the house, give the house a once over, clean out all the paraphernalia, spray for pests, and then put a padlock on the door and leave the place alone. No, that's not enough. The city or someone has to find a legitimate occupant for that house. Because if the newly cleaned up house sits empty for a few more months, guess what will happen? The users and the dealers and the prostitutes and the homeless will be right back in that house. And they'll find that they liked it better than when they left it. Because someone vacuumed for them. And someone killed off all the rats and the cockroaches. 
And so they're right back where they were, and it's worse than before. And so it is, Jesus is saying, with the human soul. If a demon is sent out of a man's soul, that's wonderful. But that's not the ultimate goal. For if the man's soul, if the house of the man's soul remains unoccupied, if a worthy and legitimate resident does not move into his soul, if, in other words, the Holy Spirit does not come and live in the place where the demon once lived, then the squatters will soon be back. In fact, Jesus indicates that somehow a cleaned up house, a socially and morally renovated soul, but yet an un converted unbelieving soul is even more attracted to evil spirit by evil spirits uh, than a house that's already dilapidated and in ruins perhaps simply because there's more damage that can be done but here's the point we mustn't think that spiritual warfare is an end in itself we mustn't think that verse 14 is the end in itself that getting people free of demonic possession and back into the mainstream of normal society is enough and we mustn't think that someone having a moral sweep and cleanup in the soul in their soul is enough because lives can be cleaned up and demons can be sent out and yet the soul may well remain empty isn't that true in other words our coworkers and our neighbors and our relatives can straighten out their lives they can stop drinking and stop partying and stop cursing and even start attending church and end up worse than before, verse 26. Because if the cleanup is not accompanied by a new resident coming to live in their souls, if the house remains vacant, if the Spirit of Jesus does not come to live inside of them, they're just a spiritual crack house waiting to happen. So the goal is not to get people out of their messes and then sort of bring them to a neutral ground where, well, at least they're not on drugs anymore. I'm not saying we shouldn't rejoice in that. We should rejoice in that. We should be amazed when someone is just physically helped, as the man in verse 14 was. But we should also remember that the end goal is not simply to get someone off drugs or off the streets or off to community college. The goal is not, I say, that we get people back onto neutral ground, onto level footing. There actually is no neutral ground, Jesus says in verse 23. He who's not with me is against me. And that verse seems not to fit in the rest of this passage until you realize that it's possible for someone, whether he's a drug addict or a family man, whether she's demon-possessed or a school teacher, to be not with Jesus. No matter how good, no matter how cleaned up they are. He who's not with me is against me. And so it's not enough just to get people cleaned up. The goal is to bring people to Jesus. The goal is that they would have not just a demon-free soul and not an empty, albeit tidied-up soul, but that they would have a soul inhabited by God Himself. That they would come to faith in Jesus who loved us and gave Himself for us. That they would be partakers of the Holy Spirit. And that's the goal for each one of us, isn't it, also? Not just that we would be morally swept and put in order, but that we would know Christ, that we would be indwelt by His Spirit. You know Christ? And are you indwelt by His Spirit? If not, then you have something to pray for. And if so, you have something to praise God for.
for and to be amazed about.